Welcome to the Movers Mindset Podcast, where I interview movement enthusiasts to find out who they are, what they do, and why they do it. In this episode, Mark Turok shares his thoughts on the commercialization of parkour, FIG, and competitions, as well as the direction parkour is headed. He also opens up about his personal goals for parkour, raising the socially acceptable age of play, and how he sees himself within the community. Mark wraps up by discussing the power of parkour to benefit all people. Hello, I'm Craig Constantine. And I'm Mark Turok. Mark Turok is the founder of American Parkour, as well as the world's first parkour gym. He was one of the founders of Urban Free Flow and went on to create two TV shows based on parkour. He has coordinated performances in 16 countries and introduced parkour into the D.C. public school system as part of their physical education curriculum. Mark believes that every person can benefit from play and parkour training, which is reflected in his personal mission to raise the socially acceptable age for play in public spaces. Welcome, Mark. Thanks, Craig. Happy to be here. All right, Mark, you've been in the parkour community for a very long time, and you've probably been in in parkour as long as any American has. And one question that I want to ask you just on a personal level is, have you ever thought about actually seriously closing up shop, like just shut down APK and start maybe something else parkour, but just like, I'm done with this particular beast? Pass. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Are you seriously dodging? I can go out of here. Because um, I, I know for a fact, like I get, I wake up every morning and I'm like, oh, the podcast. It's, it's like the, the thing that I love to hate and hate to love at the same time. I want to kill it every day and I want to never kill it kind of thing. Yeah, this is, you know, American parkour. When, when, I, when I look at the scope of what American parkour does, and then I think that there are really four or five people at the core of it it's it's uh amazing <laughs> i'm trying to think of a word for it inconceivable in, in, i keep using that word i don't think i know what it means it's it's really it's it's phenomenal it's astounding i mean we in in the in the past three weeks we've been at a uh conference for physical education teachers mm-hmm. and had 50 physical education teachers learning parkour movements for their first time and then done a performance for the world's fifth largest bank yeah and and how long APK was born when uh APK was born in 2004 so oh no craig does math that would be 14 years about for, that. Yeah, so probably 14 <laughs> years. So, I mean, and one of the questions I've always had, like, um, I'm, I'm a, like a noob when it comes to parkour. I only started seven years, seven-ish years ago. And one of the questions I always had was, it seems to me, and I haven't been on the APK boards from the beginning, but it seems to me like in the very early days, if you said the word commercialization, it was just like, the lightning would hit you. And I think today, every much, everyone has pretty much agreed like that it, you need to get paid for the thing you're pouring your life's effort into. So I'm, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts, and maybe not from like the, ah, I was right point of view, but like, how is that cha- transition? Like, how did we get from money and parkour was supposed to be the, the most evil combination ever to now it's kind of accepted? Uh, sure. So I, I have, what I'm going to say is a fairly unique perspective on that. When I first heard of parkour, I was working for a global investment bank and I was 32-ish years old. And so I had already been in the professional world for a good, uh, you know, let's say 14 years or something like mm-hmm. that. I started working pretty young. Um, in high school, I had a 40-hour-a-week <laughs> job. So, so I had already been in a professional world for 14 years when I saw parkour. Mm-hmm. And so the, the lens that I saw it through was first and foremost, that is amazing. 
it's it's amazing raw physical human accomplishment that I know takes right. physical and mental achievement. And I also said that's going to be huge someday. <laughs> right. So I had both of those thoughts simultaneously. And my opinion on how we got where we are from where we were is going to sound derogatory. And I hope that the people uh, in the in the audience who this applies to can take this with a grain of salt. Many people first discovered parkour before they had ever done their own load of laundry mm-hmm. or paid their own rent. So their view into parkour was, hey man, this should be free. I can go out and do it. Yeah, and it's money free for me right money now. Money shouldn't be connected to it at all, mm-hmm. ever. And and they had a very staunch, you know, stance on that. And their worldview at, at 15, we're all idealists. At mm-hmm. 15, we all want to change the world mm-hmm. and the way the world works. And we want to live in a commune and use a barter system <laughs> and just love everybody right. and get along. And those things are amazing ideals that I still hold to this day, but I can't eat those things. <laughs> so, right. you know, yeah. uh, I think what has happened really is that many of the people who held those opinions are now in a position where they're like, wait, I have to, I have to go I have to, to a job every day. I have day? to choose. I have to I, make the choice between bringing home the bacon and eating and then training. Well, well, and not only that, but if I have to go to a job every day, could my job be parkour? Mm-hmm. Could I get paid for parkour? Mm-hmm. And so now all of a sudden it's not, could I pay somebody for parkour? It's could I get paid for parkour? Right. Right. And of course you have to pay the bills. And of course this is the way the world works. And mm-hmm. of course everything can't be free. Mm-hmm. And that's a transition that's not a change in parkour. It's a transition that's a change in the way that a person naturally views the world between the time that they are 14 or 15 or 16 or 17 and the time they're 24 or 28 or 40 or 60. And they've been been working this job for so long. (laughs) And they're like, man, I'd much rather like jump on stuff than then go stamp things in a factory, right? right? So, so well, I, we don't I, make anything anymore, but yeah, <laughs> stuffing grocery bags, right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, so that's kind of my view on it is that it, it's not so much that parkour has changed, but that the nature of people's uh, viewpoints into yeah, parkour to it, has, right? has matured. And that, I, I agree with you completely. That was also, the, I, that was what I was figuring you were going to say previously on an, on a previous episode, Kristen and I were talking about like why I'm doing the project. And we talked a little bit about how the podcast project works. And we mentioned all these people on the team and all the people on the team get paid. I mean, they, I don't, pay them like seven figure incomes, but everybody who works on the project gets paid. And it's been that way since day one. I've never asked anybody to volunteer because I feel like you should be able to make your living doing things you're passionate about. So the people who do the audio editing, they're passionate about audio and they get paid. And it's a part-time job, but when they combine it with their coaching part-time job, suddenly they don't have to go get the time, the job that wastes all their time. So um, I'm totally in agreement with you about it. It isn't that monetizing or commercializing the thing in implicitly means that we have to lose what the thing is, that you can actually keep the spirit of it and have it be the thing that also puts bread on your table. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are commercial artist painters Mm -hmm. who paint and then sell their painting or paint on commission. And and, uh, I I dare you walk up to them and tell them they're not an artist. Of course they're an artist. (laughs) (laughs) Of course they are. Of course they love painting. They don't, they don't paint because they love money. Mm -hmm. They paint because they love painting. Right. But they, like eating too. Mm-hmm. 
So it seems like the next logical thing to talk about is once you let the Pandora's out of the box about money, then what about Pandora out of the box for competition? Because everybody's talking about the FIG all these days, but let's, what about competition? So if we say that there is a legitimate and a reasonable value to monetizing and making a commercial business out of parkour, then is there any value to be found in competition? Uh, sure. I think there is uh, quite a bit of value to be found in competition. And I'd like to first state my overall opinion on competition and parkour. And that is that I believe and want for parkour to be non-competitive okay. and for there to simultaneously be competitions based on parkour. Okay. Now, you're going to look at me and say, well, Mark, you're contradicting yourself. You just said it was non-competitive, but there are competitions. And I believe that both of those things can be true at the same time. When we go to a school, and this is, this is an amazing little uh, side quest here, this year we had what I believe is the first ever inter-school non-competitive event. The D.C. public school system mm -hmm. had a parkour jam. So they got <laughs> oh, kids cool. from multiple schools to come together for a sporting event that was non-competitive in nature. Mm -hmm. And so that is one way that I say that I believe that parkour is and should be non-competitive in its very nature, in its practice, in the way that we share it with people. Right. However, you create through this training some phenomenal athletes who do incredible things. Uh, Seth Ruji comes to mind. You know, he was just um, picked out as somebody's like third, one of the top five fastest or cool fast athletes or whatever okay. it was. And he has trained so hard and gained these phenomenal capabilities. And now he goes and competes in events. And I don't think that he looks at anybody and says, well, your parkour is not as good as mine because I'm fast. Of course he doesn't do that. That is, that is the last thing in the mm -hmm. world that Seth Ruji would ever do. Right. So, so I think that fear is a little bit unfounded that, that people, that competition automatically makes people negative or that having a competition changes the nature of the community, the event, uh, for example, surfing, there are certainly surfing competitions, right? And there are certainly people who go out and surf every single morning and right, could give each by themselves zero Fs right. about the competition. And that person really is unaffected by the competition. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, if someone comes up to them and says, wow, you're going to do a 25 foot wave. They're going to go, no, man, I, I'm doing the waves. This is my break here, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing the waves that are right here. Yeah, so. I think competition splits out into, there's like two major questions. And one is like, what is the outside world's view of the thing we're talking about. So if we have parkour competitions or we have a competition to put the P word on it, how is that going to change how the world perceives the thing? That's like one whole aspect. And the other one is like, what happens to the thing itself when competitions appear? And I really don't think that having competitions is going to change the nature of parkour because everybody who does it and really understands it knows that it's whatever it is that one does themselves. So if you have, if you're completely don't care about competitions, then your parkour remains completely unaffected. So for me, I think the, the real thing that people get grumpy about is what happens when we begin to have a competition and the rest of the world sees it. And the, um, is it, Baku, B-A-K-U, is the city that where, they're, where Feig is currently talking about how they're going to organize it. And there were people saying, that the parkour, people who were there saying that they represent parkour were excited about being able to show this 
through as many parkour competitions as they could organize. And a lot of people recoil from that in horror. So that, that would, I guess, do you have any thoughts on like, let's just presume for a second that this becomes a, you know, competition at multiple levels. You have intercollegiate, you have national levels, you have, uh, it's in the Olympics. Um, how, if at all, do you think that would affect how the public perceives parkour? It's kind of a loaded question because obviously there's going to be an effect, but what are your thoughts on that? Sure. So, Absolutely. I, I think that there, there are several, uh, this is a, a ball of yarn that we could start picking. Yeah. yeah it's a big, picking knot. a lot of different things out of it. And, and so I'll, I'll, I'll try and go through a few of them that I, that I think are pertinent and important and, and relevant. Uh, first of all, yes, it is going to change some of the public's perception of parkour. And that's based on many factors. The first one is the public will have a perception of parkour. If you walk to 50 houses and knock on the door and say, yes. hey, what do you think of parkour? They're, they're going to stare at you with a blank stare. Yeah, I would guess so, we're, we're not above 20%. I would say only one in five people that I say, oh, I do parkour. Maybe one in five random regular people know what that is. And, and you're more likely to run into people than someone twice right. removed from you in, right. the, in the middle of your state. Right. Right. So there, I would say it's one in a thousand. Yeah. Maybe. So, so that's one thing is, is it may bring positive recognition to the sport. The second thing is, will there be some negative con connotations from competition and people saying, oh, parkour is a competitive thing? And I think that's really down to the nature of the competitions themselves and the way that the participants behave. Mm -hmm. Because um, you recently did a thing with, with Andy Keller and he's so great. And, and he talked about a story and he talked about emotions and feelings being the things that are what we perceive. We don't perceive facts mm -hmm. per se. We perceive the way th those things make us feel. So when I see a competition, for example, in the X Games and it's snowboarding and some guy comes down and, and or <laughs> some girl comes down and smashes the score of the person before her, they run over and they hug right? and they both hug and nobody goes, wow, that girl's mean. She just got a better score. <laughs> right. <dare> you. <laughs> right. They go, wow, she just crushed it. And look, they're hugging and crying. Right. And, and so that's what we take away from that is a, these women are both incredible athletes and B, they share this love for this, for this same thing. And yeah, there's a competition, but that seems to be in the periphery of, the container of, of, of the their space in which that relationship happens. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's not their primary thing. And then we see, I'm gonna contrast with with pro football, mm -hmm. where someone scores a touchdown, they spike the ball angrily yeah, and an they shoot guns in the air and right. and it's pointing back at the guy who they just beat one on one. <laughs> I stepped and on your head on the way to the I stepped so on the, your so head, exactly. The question of is um I don't want to pick on like snowboarding versus American football, but not that I'm a fan of American football, but those two are very different, like in terms of they have very different uh, victory celebration kind of the, the whole environment is different. Is it different? And maybe you don't have any thoughts on this, but is it different because of the nature of those two sports? So like snowboarding, just for example, is like a single individual thing, kind of like parkour and football is definitely a team sport. Is it the nature of the sports or is it the nature of the entities that are running the sports? Cause what's, what I'm thinking is like, well, the big question, the elephant in the room, of course, is the, inter the, the international gymnastics federation. Like, okay, if we could all agree that if, for example, we all agreed that 
parkour competitions were possibly a good thing, then the next question is who should be running them? And I think the answer is not the gymnastics federation. That, that definitely not that answer. But what, like, what are your thoughts about? Are would certain sports be better than others for competition formats? So like, where does I mean, the, the, the the first thing that that comes in my head, and I I can't avoid this, and I and I don't know if this is okay on your program. But the first <laughs> thing that comes in my head is fuck the fig. <laughs> Um, I mean, it's just, it's so infuriating to me. It really is. It's absolutely infuriating. It is the wrong vehicle for parkour. I agree. It is, is the antithesis of parkour is pointing your toes, doing things for appearance, driving people to this point of unhealth and stress and dissatisfaction in life and a competitive spirit that the only parallel I can draw is beauty pageants for children, (laughs) right? Where people get so fried up that they cake this child in makeup and and scream at them right and, and it's like another life and it, their life is wrecked well i think it's, it's the problem is i think it's even worse than that i think the problem is it's not just how they do competitions it's the fact that they see parkour as an opportunity because and maybe this is a little overdone because gymnastics is dying or stalled so then they see parkour as an opportunity so even before you crit- and i agree with you even before you criticize the way that gymnastics competitions work and the, and what that is because you can find good gymnastics competitors and good you know like there are some but the fact that they're looking at parkour as something that they can take over, that to me, that's the, like, no, absolutely not. It's got to go just for that reason alone. And that's always the question I have people, and I know you're not four feet, but like for anybody who's four feet, that's the question is like, explain to me why you think another entity seeing a separate thing and going, ooh, we could take over that and it would be good for all of us. Like that to me is like, that's the reason right there for yeah. So, so here's my take on that. No, cool. No, no, cool. So, so here's my take on that. I saw this sci-fi movie once. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it was really cool. It's this huge, like outer space galaxies and whizzing through space. And people have this super cool technology. And what happens is they scorch this planet. They just drain every resource from it and they turn it into this wrinkled raisin smoldering piece of charcoal shit that used to be this gorgeous green and blue planet. Okay. And then they get in their ship and they jump out and they take it to another planet. And move to the next planet. And they move to the next planet. And and that's what I see the the fig is doing here is they they have trashed a planet. Mm-hmm. And they really have. And and there is nothing inherently bad with gymnastics. And there is nothing inherently bad with people doing gymnastics. And in my personal opinion, there is nothing inherently bad with competition. However, you can take all of those things and twist them and right. turn them and try and wring them for everything they're, they're worth, whether it's a power play, mm-hmm. which I see a lot of in, in the IOC and FIG. There's a, there's a lot of power going on there. There's a right. lot of political power. There's a lot of money yes. tied up in these things. And I say that as if I think money's a bad thing. I don't. But when it gets to such a mass scale. Well, money's just a tool. So if I, you know, if we have a pile mm-hmm. of cash and if, can we share? If we have a mm-hmm. pile of cash and you use it to do good things versus bad things. That's not the money's fault. That's whoever, you know, chose it, picked it up as a tool and used it. So in this case, I think the Gymnastics Federation, I mean, didn't the USA Gymnastics entity just file for bankruptcy protection because I was just like, yeah, this is working out really well. Because they don't have a pile of cash. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. So the thing being, the Olympics needs to thrive on 
billions of dollars, right? When they mm-hmm. when they build a new Olympic stadium, right? I never understood. I, I got to see the stadium in Beijing. It was phenomenal. We did a we did a performance there the year after the Olympics. So we got to tour the the brand new mm-hmm. Completely unused for the rest of its life. <laughs> right. Multi, I don't know, I'm going to say multi-billion, but I have no idea, right? Facilities that are built for this one-time yeah, event. Two weeks, three weeks. Right? And there is a huge, right, like what? what is the benefit to a country of running the Olympics? It's got to be billions of dollars, mm-hmm. right? So that's a powerful thing. If somebody says, I can have those billions of dollars or... Joe is going to get those billions of dollars. Well, guess what? I'm willing to do some pretty nasty shit yeah. to get those billions of dollars. I mean, I'm not personally. Right. The, but whoever, but <laughs> there's also a big, um, I don't know what the word for it is. There's also a big positioning thing. So if you are a country with a city that can uh, woo the IOC to bring the competition to you, then that suddenly brings you onto a certain level as like we are the kind of country or city that can pull that off and that can change the, can like turn around the entire society by just, or, or, or make it turn around for certain aspects of the society. Like it's a whole, it's super complicated socio-politically. Exactly. And you know, one, one thing, and this is, this is a total, total side tangent to this is the reason that people won't watch gymnastics more than every four years is because they don't understand the scoring. I got to work with an amazing, amazing man who, uh, he's the man who created the world's strongest man TV show, which is the longest running, most successful sport television show in history. And I got to work with the man who created that a phenomenal, phenomenal guy. And the one thing he told me is that people love football because they can see the ball move down the field and they know when it goes over the goal line and they will only watch gymnastics every four years because they see an incredible phenomenal performance and then some person that they don't know and don't care about spits out a score based on rules they don't understand which seems arbitrary so the person that they picked because they love them, because we saw Simone Biles' story right. and we love her and oh my God, she's amazing and she did this incredibly athletic thing and they gave the Some other person three more points. <laughs> and so we don't like that sport. We don't like it because we can't, we can't determine the winner. So that's a good point. So now I'm immediately like, how does the scoring work in a parkour competition? So for me, the, the only true nature of a parkour competition and this is very, very hard to create, is an obstacle course with a clearly defined start and mm-hmm. finish point, mm-hmm. perhaps some hopefully naturally available checkpoints. Yeah, In other words, you, if I have to reach out with my pinky toe, that's not a natural checkpoint. Around the building and over the hill or whatever. And then no penalties that aren't natural. So maybe there's a river. And if you fall in the river, it's going to take you longer because your <laughs> shoes are wet <laughs> to get out. Right? Or, you know, one of the things that I wanted to do on one of my shows was put razor wire across something because they didn't want anybody going across. Them. I'm like, well, let's put some razor wire there. And if you want then, to go across it, <laughs> if you, <laughs> up, right? if you think that's the best way you go right ahead. But again, so it's not, oh, this railing is out of bounds because mm-hmm. I said it's out of bounds. It's, hey, that's razor wire. You probably shouldn't touch it. Right. Right. So that so would that, be. That format is time. That would be time-based. Then, so time, time-based. Time. Right. And, because for me, the the essence of parkour, and I'm, I'm going to show my my age here. I am stodgy enough to believe that parkour and free running are two different things. Mm-hmm. And the way I'm going to define that is I'm going to say that parkour is any movement 
that you would use in an emergency situation. For example, you're being chased by a tiger, I think was Sebastian Foucault's mm -hmm. example. I always say, you know, chased by a, a Rottweiler with sharks for teeth and lasers for teeth or something right. like that. <laughs> you know, if you're being chased by a Rottweiler and a front flip is the best move to get over that hedge and get away from that Rottweiler. Front flip. Front flip is parkour. Right. However, when you simply go into a space and express yourself through movement mm -hmm. with no particular time or distance endpoint right, goal. It an artistic expression. This for me is free running. Okay. And so that's that's my personal, and I know you shouldn't say my definition of things because nobody, I'm not saying anybody should give a crap about my definition. Right. The, but this is my view of those things. So parkour is only those movements which aid you in getting somewhere efficiently and effectively. And that can, that varies from situation to situation to situation and That's person huge. to person, right. body type. Again, this is such a vague thing that it's not defined by a move is a vault parkour. Well, not if you do it back and forth of the same thing. And in, in my opinion, then, then it's free running because you just expressed yourself. And if you're really trying to get over there, you wouldn't turn around and come back. So if you're, and I'm only just trying to keep us like on, you know, so it, um, that makes me think if. You're talking about, and, and I, I agree with you, there's nothing wrong with what you're saying about parkour versus free running. And, and like, you can ask anybody and people have different definitions, but let's, let's go with those. So if we're talking about parkour as a, let's say functionality and route focused thing, then it makes total sense to have time-based for a competition format. And there's a ton of options that you could do with that. You know, this one's Barville, this one's, you know, Wallville. And then that means that my next question is, well, does that mean that the parkour that looks like free running. So parkour that's more artistic. What happens to the people who want to have a competition and they want to talk about the artistic component? Cause it's like gymnastics does artistics, floor, artistic floor displays. So I'm just, I'm just like trying to dig into all the facets of competition. So how, how do we go about resolving the, well, if the best way to have a competition is a time-based one, then does that mean that we shouldn't have competitions for the, the free runners if we call it that? Here's my thoughts on that. I absolutely think that we could have competitions for the artistic side, what, what I'm going to call the free running side of it. Mm -hmm. Shout out to some people, Dante Grazioli, Joey Adrian is one of my favorite athletes on the planet. Just so creative. Um, just so many, so many amazing athletes. Fosky. Uh, just, uh, Do you two, happen to know if those types of people, I'm just random, are they, are they interested in competitions? Personally? Uh, I, like, Joey they, Adrian definitely does competitions. And, and what kind um, of, but what, what kind of format is he uh, like how do they do I, those? I I think the people that I just mentioned prefer the uh, well Fosky leaving Fosky out. I think maybe even Fosky. I think those people prefer the artistic creative side mm -hmm. uh, of it. Mm -hmm. And so what what I'm going to say is I am all for that. I love that. For me, one one of the most beautiful things that parkour brings about is that quality of flow. When I watch somebody connect two movements and they connect them well. Mm -hmm. I'm more interested in that than I am in the two movements. And I think a lot of athletes are interested in three and a half spins or five and a half spins. I don't care as long as you land and, and transition into right. something else and, and make it beautiful and seamless. And that, that's a quality that, that I use the word grace and grace is a combination of power and beauty. So, and that takes so much more power than people give it credit yeah. for yeah. A, a ballerina's calves are are rock something you know we say oh she's so graceful and beautiful and delicate she's delicate like she could 
Tony jaw the shit out of you. <laughs> she is not delicate by any means. Right. She will kick a hole in three foot concrete. Yeah. That's an so, ability that they are, that they can create after they have the power to move in a certain way. Exactly. And that's one of the things that I love to see in those formats of competitions. Mm, okay. So, um, what I'm going to say, and this is not meant to be negative, the difficulty or challenge again with that competition is to the average observer, a layout backflip off a six foot box is way better than a triple cork mm -hmm. because the average observer can't count the three spins right, in right, a right, triple right. cork and the layout gives them this sense of height uh, and Yeah, there's a three dimension and, and it's the time the is significantly longer. And time in their brain is longer, right? And sure, we can show an instant replay, but going back to the point that I talked about with whether the observer can view the winner right. and, and have the correct answer, right? right? In, in basketball, I, I don't ever pick and say, well, I think the other team really won. You yeah. know, you it happens in boxing call or a right? foul or how, you know, how aggressive a team played, but <clears throat> like the ball was in the net or not. And yeah. you were behind the three point line or not. Right. Right. And that's why I think the, the popularity of the team sports that we have is what it is. Mm -hmm. And wrestling doesn't get the, the credit it deserves. And gymnastics doesn't get the credit it deserves. Like boxing, like the and, golden gloves competitions are uh, like steeped in history. And a lot of people who you wouldn't think of as athletes talk about, you know, oh, by the way, I was in golden gloves. And, and I mean, if, if people don't know what that is, you should go look it up, but there's, there's a lot of history in those kinds of sports. And, and that, what I was going to just about to say was that makes me think of all of the competitions that aren't so aggressively competitive. I'm not quite sure how to like say it, like, like tennis and well, ping pong is an example of one that's really aggressive. It's super <laughs> aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> Which I just like popped into my head, but like tennis and, and even sports like polo, where it's a very physical sport. But somehow through the rules and the culture, which, which parkour has in spades, the culture, I mean, so it's somehow with a combination of rules and culture, they've managed to keep the quality of the thing that they started with and, yeah. and kept that within the competition. So, you know, I think of rugby versus American football, Yeah, you know, rugby is, Hey, I'm going to knock your teeth out mm -hmm. and then we're going to go drink four pints of beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or you could just pass the ball before I knock your teeth out. Right. <laughs> All right, we've been talking about competition a lot, and and that's great. There's tons to unpack with competition, and and we'll come back to that either literally in another episode, or people can talk to you in real life. I'm, I just don't want to, um, I don't want to like use up all the time that I have. <laughs> I only have so much time here. So what I want to ask is, let's let's like turn completely left, and I have questions of like, uh, okay, so you and I are basically the same age, and I don't like I struggle for real with like okay, do I kill this project that I love or do I keep going with it? And, and my question for you is like, I mean, like, how do you get up every day and like climb off the floor and like, oh, stretch out the kinks. All right, let's go do. And like, like, how do you, do you just like never look up and you just keep your head down and do, do, do? Or, or do you have moments of self, you know, I've had it like, uh, how old am I? And I've not, you know, I don't like really give me some of the actual sure, self-talk. Sure. So, so he, so here's the real deal. I think that throughout my life, I have developed an extremely high tolerance for stress. Mm -hmm. And I think that most of the time I run within a 10% margin of nervous breakdown. Mm -hmm. So a, I think I can carry a lot of stress. The having 
the organization that I have, I consider myself in a way a shepherd of parkour. I think that I am a person who is responsible for the way that people view parkour. You asked, how does this change how people view parkour? How does that change how people view parkour? I am one of the people who helps to dictate what that is. And that is such a tremendous, tremendous burden on me. Mm -hmm. I take that so, so, so seriously that I don't want to mess that up. That's, that's so much bigger than me or American parkour or any one or 10 individuals or, right? right? This is a huge thing that, that I'm so vested in. And I, and I want, I want parkour to be a successful thing. And the reason for it and the thing that drives me and that keeps me going is that I see it as one of the purest forms of actually improving people's lives on both an individual and communal and global level. So to so kind of when the self-talking gets tough, like, and I don't mean this like in a comic way, but like when you're like this, this, oh man, I got this problem and I'm at the end of my rope today that you, you like, that you actually talk to yourself about what the weight I'm going to, I'm going to remind myself of the big picture that I think I'm participating in painting or like, or do you just somehow you manage to like, oh, like, cause for me, I don't ever seem to be able to talk myself out of the hole. I, I've basically learned to like, when I am ready to rage quit, like delete it all. Okay. Which is like every Tuesday when I'm ready to rage quit it all, I go, and it's time to watch a movie. So I love science fiction. It's time to watch a movie. And I just, I, I pause and I just step back, but I'm not, ne I've never seen you able to talk myself up out of that. So are you saying that you, you managed to talk yourself up out of that or, or do you like, cause I'm, I'm interested in like, how do you really, cause sure. I, don't, I think people, I don't think people so, who haven't actually tried to build something really big, they don't really understand the depth of the self doubt or the depth of like the self referential crushing, and crushing, crushing analysis. Yeah. Absolutely. Soul crushing. <laughs> um, so right. How do you, because, how do you because, with that, because like, literally. who am I to say that I'm one of the people responsible for what parkour looks like? Right. Just that. Who am I to say that? <laughs> you know, no, nobody handed me a plaque that said, hey, Mark Turok, you're you're allowed to say that you think that people give a shit what you think about parkour. <laughs> right. Or, or that you're some kind of custodian for parkour. Nobody nobody gave me that permission. So I, I constantly have to question whether that is what I have. But you know what? By putting a, a program in public schools, right. that's kind of validity of that. It's not validity that I'm doing a good job. It's validity that somebody's listening to my opinion. Mm -hmm. So having to make sure and back that up that I'm doing a good job is such a, such a huge, huge task. And it's funny you say, do, do I step back and look at the big picture? And the, the thing that drives me is I step back and I look at the little picture because the thing for me about parkour is, is if I can make one person that used to walk with their head down, walk with their head up, mm -hmm. that that's the change in the world. We, we don't change the world. We change a person. Right. And then we change another, and person, change another person. And they go and they lift two people up. <laughs> and they go and lift two people up. And, and my, my true belief about parkour is that once you have accomplished something for yourself, we, we don't create, we don't give people confidence. We don't give people anything. The thing that in parkour we give people is a gap. Mm -hmm. We give them a challenge that they have to cross. Right. We give them tools to cross it, but we give them 
the challenge. And that's something that people don't get in a lot of places now. They're so handheld, so walk through every phase right. and with no chance yeah, no to fail. Failure. <laughs> right. right? That's the problem. In parkour, we provide that opportunity to fail. We provide that mm -hmm. gap. And once someone crosses that gap, it's very unlikely that they're going to turn around and point their nose down at somebody. Mm -hmm. Very unlikely. Very unlikely that they're going to see someone who needs help and say, nah, I'm not going to help you. Because they've, they've, they've earned that thing for themselves and they understand what that feels like. And that is something that, that nobody can take away. And this, is, this comes down to one of the cores of what I think is one of the most important things about parkour, especially in our world today. And that is, I believe that our world today is based on so many superficial things. We are told how much our looks matter. Right. We're told how much our clothing matters, how much the badge on our car, not the horsepower, not the performance, right. how much what the model? name yeah. badge on the car matters, how much the the swoosh on your shoe mm -hmm. matters. And all of those things, you know, my, to boil it down very simply, somebody can walk up to me and say, I'm pretty. And if I smile and go, oh, I'm pretty. Well, guess what? The next person's going to walk up and go, you're ugly. You're ugly. And right. now it's, I'm like, oh, I'm oh. ugly. And the thing is, I, I, I don't want to be at the whim of other people's Am I valuable because I'm pretty or value not valuable right. because I'm Whatever ugly? Whatever assessment they're making, yeah. You However, don't want to be grounded in that external assessment. Exactly. However, if I used to be able to jump four feet and now I can jump four feet two inches, nobody can come up to me and say, you didn't do that. Right. <laughs> nobody can come up to me and say, your value is only jumping four feet because I've made an actual improvement and nobody can ever take that away from me. And that for me is, is really the core value of parkour is giving that opportunity to people to earn that feeling for themselves, because I believe that they will then go out and make the world a better place. Mark, I mentioned your personal mission is to raise the socially acceptable age for play in public spaces. And I've talked to you before about this. We mentioned it briefly in the Spark Talk. Um, but can you just unpack that a little bit? I mean, it's obvious to you and me why that's a great thing and why we'd both be passionate about it. But can you just unpack it for those who might not think that's something we need to do? Uh, sure. The, the first thing I'm going to do is, is take one right out of left field and say that one of the most important things to me personally is women in STEM. Mm -hmm. So here's how this relates. We take young children and at a certain age, they're told, don't do that. Mm -hmm. And especially girls are told not to dig in the mud, not to touch bugs, not to we'll play with trucks, right? There, there are certain, there are certain things that young women are discouraged from exploring. And then we say, well, why aren't there more women scientists? Well, mm -hmm. because we told them not to be, we literally told them not to explore. We told them not to climb trees. We told them not to touch bugs or eat bugs or do whatever they, they want with bugs. And, and I think that that stifles their, their future sense of creativity and exploration. Mm -hmm. And it's not that they're wired any differently or that they have any different capacity. It's that they're literally talked out of being something outside of that norm. And how this relates to play is to the point where, you know, I know gender is a very hot topic these days. They are literally called a boy if they like to play. Right. They're a tomboy, right? All of a sudden, a girl is a boy if she likes to play. If she likes to climb trees, she is now assigned a different gender. 
that's pretty effed up. Right. You know, so now talking about the age at which it's socially acceptable to play in public, this comes from at some point we're all told, get down from there. Don't do that. You don't climb trees anymore. You have to be thinking about this and that and the other thing. And you, sir, how old are you? You should know better. <laughs> you I had should a cop say that to me one time. <laughs> you should know better, right? Yeah. And and you should be you should be wearing the same necktie noose yes, that yes. I am. I almost said you shouldn't be eating the donuts. You should know better, right? But anyway. <laughs> yeah. So and and so we're discouraged from play. We are literally right. discouraged from it. Adults can't be in playgrounds. Now, there there are two parts to that. There's the rule of having nobody over the age of 13 or 14 in a park. That's because they have to make their equipment reach a certain right, standard. Right, so there right. are actually some good reasons for that. But let's build more parks for adults right. to My play. My complaint isn't that I cannot play in this particular park. My complaint is, okay, where do I get to play? Where is my park? No, I, I have to go play on like one thing that they give me, you know. Right, and not even, and God forbid you play in a place that's not meant for play. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> okay. Right? That bench is for sitting. What are you doing? Right, that bench, is, that bench is for sitting. That, that handrail, oh yeah, which so many people use for, <laughs> <laughs> for balancing, right? I mean, oh, sorry, for their own balance, you right. know what I mean? Right, so... So just the idea that play is somehow bad or somehow outside of the goal of humanity is so just... I, I talk about this a lot too. Not a lot, but I, I bring this topic up too because I'm always the old, you know, random old person doing something. And how, how just personally, how do you tackle the, I call them the random naysayers that come up and like, what are you doing? Or get down from there. Or my favorite is when balancing on something at height. Oh my God, that's dangerous. So yeah. And it just got safer because you're distracting me. You know, how does this work? But like, what do you, how do you actually engage? Or, you know, did you just like make a rude gesture or do you, <laughs> I mean, my personal modus operandi is to like dis continue what I'm doing and to try and figure out whether they're actually trying to interact. If they're actually trying to interact, then I try to figure out what their level of interest is or what do they know, what they're interested in asking. Like, how, how do you go about doing it? Because this is like, okay, so what do we literally do, Mark, fellow oldster? <laughs> <laughs> sure. So, so for me, this is always an opportunity to push my personal agenda, mm -hmm. right? Because this is one of the people who's on the other side of the agenda from me. Right. Right. And, so and they stopped. Like most right. people just walk by. Right. So this is someone that I can, that I can perhaps win over to my side of the, of the, mm -hmm. of the argument. So I am going to try and take that opportunity. And what I tell them is I, I use two words most, most frequently. I say either that I am playing or I'm training. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I go so far as to use the E word, which we don't use in my gym. We never say exercise here because right. we're always moving or training, not exercising. Cause that's like for hamsters and stuff. Um, <laughs> You know, just in resources. <laughs> you know, to to riff off your comment about playing, I I hadn't thought of this until just now. I think I don't get good results if I say to people I'm exercising because then the next comment is something to the effect of why aren't you in the gym if you're exercising? And if I say training, they're like, what does that mean? And why are you on the railing, dumbass? Get down. But when I've said play, I at least get another pause. Like they go. Huh? And I'm like, ah, we're making progress here. Like we are still talking. I have put an idea in your head that you want. So I really like your point about, you know, saying playing to people. Right. And, but also training, that is your segue. When they right. don't understand what you're training, that gives you a segue to say, you know, the human body is capable of amazing things. How's your balance? <laughs> Exhibit A. I'm on a railing. You know? <laughs> How, how's, how's your, when's the last time you practice balance? Yeah. And, and I asked them and they, they look at me like, <laughs> how many heads do you have? Yeah. Some people get really aggressive and, you know, and at first I thought they were just 
I don't know, like wanted to, con- but I, I think they actually get defensive. Oh yeah. So if, especially if like I look a little pudgier and older than the person who, and I'm like, why is that guy doing that thing that I can't imagine doing? So yeah, it's, a, I, I totally am down with your mission. That's a, so, a great mission. And then, uh, one of my favorite, just on a tangent of the responses, one of my favorite ones, and I'm all, I'm always in favor of being respectful of other people, respectful of authority, mm-hmm. whether or not I actually respect that authority, <laughs> I'm going to act <laughs> respectful right. to the authority because anything else doesn't suit the mission. Mm-hmm. So being disrespectful to a police officer doesn't have a good outcome in right. any, in any, any, any circumstance. Yeah. It doesn't have a good outcome. So why do it? Does it make you feel better? Yeah. You know, no, what makes me feel better is, is getting parkour to be more widespread. So if, if the key to my, my, you know, helping push that agenda is acting respectful to the authority, then that is what I do. And it gives me at least the chance to have the conversation. However, on one occasion (laughs) at one of our very early Beast Coast jams, I'm talking like Beast Coast four, the place where they put up the very first no parkour signs in the country, if not in the world was in uh, Bethesda, Maryland. And it was because of our Beast Coast jam. And we're in an office park complex and it's this beautiful courtyard setting that is just ripe for parkour. (laughs) And a security guard comes out to me and he says, you can't do that here. And I said, and you know, again, normally I am very happy to oblige and move along. We've got 60 kids who have come from great distances to be here at this event. We're in a beautiful space that is not interfering with anybody else. It's a Sunday afternoon. Nobody else is using a space for anything, right? So we're not interfering with anybody. We're not damaging the property. We're not really in any way are we infringing on somebody's really rights, right? So I take this opportunity and I say, well, you know what? I actually can do this here. And no, you can't. And I said, why not? Well, because, you know, and searches, <laughs> right. searches for an answer and comes up with the, with the liability thing. He says, I'm going to call the police. And so I was flipping and I'm not usually flippant, but I said, go ahead. I'm going to call Domino's. They have a 20 minute guarantee. We'll see who gets <laughs> here first. first. Oh, God. And then I said to him, <laughs> you go ahead, call the police and tell him that you have 60 children exercising on your property and you want that not to happen. <laughs> to kind of ended the conversation. He walked away, you know. I Again, usually if I'm in somebody's space where I might be infringing on their rights or making them feel uncomfortable, I move along. Do I always think it's the right thing to do? In some respects, yes. In some respects, no. But even if I don't, if it's not me that's uncomfortable... I sometimes have to put that other yeah, person first, to like, right? I have to yeah. defer to the greater good of everyone who might use that yeah, space. Sometimes the person who approaches you is like clearly distraught. Like you're clearly wigging them out. Like they're worried people are going to fall and like explode. I don't know. Whatever. Yeah. And you're just like, <laughs> right. okay, you know what? We'll get down. Like I, yeah. I understand your fear. We'll move on. Yeah. So, so you just move on. And then other times, again, I use it as an opportunity to, to have an interaction with that person and, and to change people's perception of the acceptable age to play in public. Mark, as our insiders program grows, we actually ask the people 
what they want me to ask the guests. And it's always tough in short format to get to everything, but I have three people who send in a couple of questions. So uh, we kind of need to do this a little bit more rapid fire. Um, I mean, you're welcome to go off on at length, but just generally what I'll do is I'll, I'll give you some people's names and a couple, they've asked like three questions. So I'll give you the questions and then you can ask me for a reread or, or if you want to uh, skip one or whatever. So um, the first person who wrote in was Jesse Danger gave us three questions and they are, and one of these I touched on before is, have you ever thought about stopping American parkour? Second question is, what is something you hoped to build but haven't been able to build yet? And the third one is, what is something you were surprised to have learned through this process? Classic Jesse, vague questions. Cool. I I can't say enough in a in a short format how much I love Jesse Danger. So, um, you know, just Hashtag just Jesse, right? Just big big ups, big respect. So, have you thought cool. about stopping? Uh, have I thought about stopping American parkour? So. If you are good at your job, you can walk away from it, okay? So I'm not that good at my job yet. <laughs> so American well parkour, it's just it's just a part of parkour. So if American parkour stopped, it wouldn't even stop because American parkour is all of these people who parkour has affected. Excellent, excellent point. Yes. So, you know, I could stop doing American parkour. Mm -hmm. The company may or may not exist anymore, but American parkour is just a part of parkour. It's not... It, it, like a it, vehicle, a container that holds a part of it? it hold, yeah, it holds a certain amount of water, but it's the water that's important, right? Mm -hmm. Make mm -hmm. a vessel out of clay, it's mm -hmm. the empty space that's important. Mm -hmm. So American parkour is just a, a vessel, just a, a, a sort of, maybe it's a flavor, but uh, just a part of parkour. And so if that part stopped, I imagine that that water would just keep running It'd into the other else. streams that it runs into. Right. And, you know, and those, those, the, all the amazing people who are part of American parkour, their, their, their contributions would, would still go on. Right. Okay. Uh, so something that I have hoped to build, but haven't been able to yet. So I always wanted to build an AI dog. No. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, where's the oh, the dog is asleep. <laughs> the dog's asleep. We always joke this podcast is brought to you by coffee, not today, but brought to you by coffee and dogs. There's a dog sleeping. Winnie is back here. Nice, nice. So something that I have hoped to build but haven't been able to yet. So I'm gonna take this question two different directions. One is a really good portable vault box. <laughs> so I think <laughs> that's like the holy grail. That is the holy grail. We need a really good portable vault box. So and that's been if if I could add up the brain cycles of mine when you only have three brain cells they have to work really hard and i've been spending two of them on this day and night for the last 14 years and i'm like a tenth of the way there so oh, a really good vault box right yeah so a really good portable vault box but the thing that i would love to build and this goes on to have i ever thought about stopping american parkour and this is something that i am very recently redoubling my efforts on is building an actual parkour company. So American parkour runs on love. It runs on grit. It runs on sweat. <laughs> right. It runs on tears. It runs on, it runs on people crying and yelling at each other because they care so much about what they're doing, but they're mm -hmm. frustrated by a lack of resources, by a lack of good management from the top down, yeah. by, by a lack of so many things. 
and and this is my fault. This this is this is my ship. I'm the captain, and I'm I'm the one who's been been driving it into these heavy seas. And and guess what? If you've seen the perfect storm, that ain't shit. <laughs> so you know, people they're like, oh, shiny red ball. You know, I would be the poster child for ADHD or ADD or I don't even know what. But you know, so. <laughs> Something I have hoped to build but haven't yet, yes, is a successful parkour, parkour company. company. And I'm working on that. Again, I've redoubled my efforts. I am, for the first time ever, hiring not only an operations manager, but also a business development person. So part of the problem with a small company is in a small company, your org chart is the same size as a big company. Right. But one person's name is on every box. <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. So that person can only do so good at those tasks, no matter how much they love it, no matter what they right. want to do. And so now I'm trying to get more names in more boxes mm -hmm. and make those fulfilling jobs, fulfilling real jobs for people right. to do that aren't just driven by blood, sweat and tears, but driven by actual good business processes mm -hmm. and going back to the money thing. Yes, some money so that those people can have a paid existence right. that's comfortable, that's well, happy. Those people have families. That's, yeah, that's have. a real job with insurance and, and things like that. You know, why shouldn't the people who work on parkour deserve those benefits? They right. absolutely do. So that's the thing that, I, that I'm working on building. And then the second person was Adam McClellan who wrote in, what's your philosophy on making money from parkour? The second question is, what are three important things a new or potential gym owner should know? Don't do it. And three, <laughs> what do you enjoy in your personal life that has nothing to do with parkour? Oh, excellent question. So uh, let's see. So what's your philosophy on making money? I'll turn this around so you can see it. Potential gym owner and... Cool. So my philosophy on making money from parkour has nothing to do with parkour at all. My philosophy on making money comes from Henry David Thoreau. And he said, if a man does what he does well, the path to his door will be wide and well beaten. That's my philosophy on making money. If you do a good job, then you deserve what you earn from people who benefit by paying whatever they pay for your services in a fair exchange. Absolutely. And for me, that applies to painting a house, to sweeping a floor, Groceries. to collecting eggs from chickens, to teaching people parkour, to life coaching, to personal training, mm -hmm. to, you know, from hard goods to soft services. If you do that well and you benefit somebody's life and in exchange, they give you some of the money they got for doing what they do well and benefiting somebody else's life, then that's how money should be made. Now, there is a, a flip side to that coin. If you benefit off the backs of other people right. without them benefiting from what they are doing, that is, in my opinion, the wrong one way to make money. Right. Or if you benefit from deceit or you or benefit coercion. for coercion or, or unjust practices or deception, the, those are, those are wrong ways to make money. And that again is independent of whether it's parkour or painting a house right. or being an electrician or, and every profession in the world has people who are good at it, people who are bad at it, people who are vested people who aren't so vested. And so, you know, I, I don't think that it's, that it's the job that defines whether that person is vested or not. It's the person and, and a person can bring their joy de vie to whatever they're doing. And 
I'm going to go so far as to separate people into good and bad. A good person will do that. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't mean that anybody's not good. They just might not be good yet. Three important things a newer potential gym owner should know that Craig just groaned about. So I'm going to hit this one hard. I groaned? Did I groan? <laughs> you said, don't do it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> don't, don't do like, it. Don't, don't, don't. Cool. So I'm going to stick. Take the thing you love and make you hate it. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to stick to one. This is the most important one in my opinion. I think that most people want to start a parkour gym because they love the parkour community and they believe that they are building a space for that community to train. And the answer is you are not because those people want to train outside and that's why they are the parkour community. You are building a gym for people who don't venture outside, who don't know how to start, who perhaps aren't that kind of learner right. or that kind of adventurer. And you are giving those people a new community with guidance and direction. So that to me is the most important thing that, it, that a potential gym owner should know. And then what do I enjoy in my personal life that has nothing to do with parkour? So I have to say... I have the most amazing girlfriend on the planet. She is so fun to be with and so supportive of me, which unfortunately has a lot to do with parkour because my whole life has to do with parkour. And if I had to count the number of Sunday nights that she has been either sanding pipes or actually making precision trainers <laughs> at 10 p.m. on a Sunday night, mm -hmm. I can tell you the number is 52 every year yeah. because she is there with me every step of the way. But she also takes me out of it. And we went on a 20, 21 miles over two days hike in the Superstition Mountains two weeks ago in Phoenix, Arizona. And it was unreal. It was out of this world, Tolkien-like landscapes that were just phenomenal. And she she pushes me out of my comfort zone. She's super comfortable rock climbing and rappelling, and I am not. And she takes me and she ties me to a rope and throws me over a cliff, kicking and screaming and clawing at her. what's going on there. And yes. so <laughs> <laughs> she told me the rope was tied. Um... <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so, but I love that. I love adventuring and I'm going to say, you know, and this, this is a, a perversion of the word parkour for me, my, my love of parkour is jumping from boulder to boulder in a river. Mm -hmm. That's my parkour. That, that for me is, is that kind of movement where I'm just, I indoors, I'm very calculated when things are geometric. I have a very, um, afraid mind. That's very calculating. And, you know, I remember the first time at Sebastian Foucault, he said, you should never measure anything with a tape measure. You measure it by what your body knows. And I was like, that's good for you. But you know what? I've done computer technology for the last 18 years. I don't, I don't measure things by what my body knows. My body doesn't know a damn thing. I need a tape measure. I need a ruler to tell me what my body thinks it knows. And so when I'm in a square environment, whether that's a gym or, a, or a city around things that I know. Somehow that kind of feeds that. I'm fairly restrictive in my movement. When I get outside with boulders, I will huck myself off a 12 or 14 foot drop because I'm free and I'm just moving and whatever movement comes, I'm there with it and I move with it. Mm -hmm. And that for me, that's my real happy place. Like my, literally my favorite thing to do in the world is jumping on rocks in a river, then having a cookout and, 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 a, and a campfire and eating some watermelon. Everybody knows my love-hate relationship with watermelon. Um, <laughs> yeah, so cool. Uh, and then we have Jonathan McCarver 
who wrote in and asked, Mark, you've been in the parkour community for a very long time, probably as long as any American. What about the current state of parkour culture and business is different now than it has been in the past? And a second question, what about the world of parkour has stayed consistent in all this time? Cool. So uh, I'm going to start with the, I'm going to start with the second question. What about the world of parkour has stayed consistent all this time? And it is one of my favorite things about the world of parkour is it brings people together across all of the other perceived boundaries and separations in parkour. I don't care which way you face when you pray. I don't care what it says on your paycheck. I don't care which side of the tracks you were born on. I don't care what color your skin is. I could give a hoot about any of those things. And not that I personally do in any other aspect, but I think that our world does. And our world does pay a lot of attention to those differences. And parkour is a place where we can escape all of that and just be human. And, and we are really good at being human with each other in the parkour community. Mm -hmm. And the first one. Uh, so what's changed in the current state of, uh, culture and business and how's it different in the past? Well, uh, we alluded to this before. I think that business in parkour is now much more acceptable. So that's, that's really cool. You know, I, I get called a lot less names now for, <laughs> for owning a parkour business. And, and I've had the exact same intentions the whole time. But I think the way other people the view my has changed, intentions right? has changed quite significantly uh, over, over time. Do you think that's just because there have been so many other people who have done it now that, that people have just thrown up their hands and said, oh, the horse is out of the barn? Or do you think people have changed their opinion of it? Well, or... I, I, I think both. One, I, I think that... As things become normalized, they become accepted. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that that's good. I'm not saying that's good or bad because sometimes bad things become normalized and right. become accepted. So it has become normalized and it has become more accepted. And again, neither good nor bad on that front, except for the fact that the more parkour gyms we have, the more of those other people we're going to reach. Mm -hmm. So the adventurer was always outside jumping around on stuff. They, they, before, before we had the word parkour, I, I was out. I remember a day, this is, this is a side quest. I was in dress shoes, story you would like, like, <laughs> like leather bottom dress shoes. And, oh, wow. and I work at a printing company and I'm in charge of their technology. Okay. And I'm on a break and I'm walking down a wooden, wooden flat, like, you know, a two by six top of a, of a kind of homemade handrail oh, okay. on top of a, just like a five or six stair set. I'm walking down that in these leather dress shoes, okay? And there's one of those bollards, like a parking the cement mm -hmm. like post about three feet away. And I try and jump from the angled wooden railing Rail, right? to the top of that concrete bollard. My foot slips off a uh, three-inch diameter, okay? Like three or Not six-inch six diameter. Or three inch diameter and I slip and land on my kidneys on this thing oh, and then fall spear. to the ground in my dress clothes at work. And I'm laying on the ground just like, <laughs> and I, I probably couldn't move for five minutes. I couldn't breathe. Right. Oh, but, man. but the thing is, 
I was always that person. I was that person before parkour. And I love, you know, David Bell, I give, I give credit for being the one to show me the way. And so many other people, so many of the original founders showed me the way. And I, and I don't for a minute say that they didn't, but I was dabbling in that way before they showed me the way. Mm. And I think that a lot of people, when we look at the parkour community or what we currently think of as the core parkour community, those are those people. They are the people that, that tried to try what happens when you put the Legos on each other upside down. What happens when you put the round peg in the square <laughs> hole? What, <laughs> put this paper clip in the out a little bit. <laughs> yeah. What, what happens when I eat this mud? Like, why shouldn't I eat mud? I know you told me not to, but that's never a good reason not to do anything. Right. So I think that what happens is once we do start to see businesses form around it, we can share that love of exploration and joy of movement with people for whom that's not natural. Mm -hmm. You know, I was the only person in my office to do that that day. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, everybody else wasn't doing that. But again, I feel they could benefit from some aspect of that. So being able to share that with them through a business environment, I, I think is one of the positive benefits that, that we have. Mm -hmm. I've said this many times in the podcast, I'm personally passionate about collecting stories. So Mark, is there a story that you'd like to share? Uh, sure. There, there are a couple I'd like to share and these are just really, really quick, but I, th I think they'll, that people in the audience will really connect with them because, because I think your, your audience really is the core people who are driving parkour, the people who are making parkour happen right now. I don't assume anybody is listening. <laughs> oh, I, both of them are deeply vested in parkour. <laughs> one of them is my wife, right? The other one. <laughs> Okay, then all four of them. All four of them, <laughs> all four of them are Sorry, deeply I vested. I didn't mean to derail you. You were going to say two <laughs> two short stories. Sure. So one of them is the only person that ever lied about their age to get into our parkour classes. So for some reason, he felt that if he told us he was 82, we wouldn't allow him in the classes. So he lied and told us he was 68. <laughs> and he came in and trounced, absolutely trounced the, the foundations class that he was in. Mm -hmm. He crushed it. He was just this ball of energy and excitement and passion and curiosity and not, not when I say natural athleticism, people are going to think that I mean that he's an athlete and he wasn't a super athlete. But he was a good athlete and he was a natural athlete. He just enjoyed moving. And so he just was such a perfect fit for our foundations class. And that's just, I just love that, that that's a thing. So, and the other story is actually kind of similar. One day, uh, back in the early days when we had classes for very young children, we, we actually started our classes at three years old. And back in the early days, we had plenty of days where there was two students, no students. And I'm sure any, anyone with a gym who started a gym can, can relate to this. When you start a gym, the, the first day, there's nobody there. Like, <laughs> right. you know, like, okay, we're open. Right. Uh, you know, yeah, there's, there, there is nobody there until, until people find out about you. And, you know, unless you, if you're smart enough to do a soft launch and do marketing and all, I didn't know any of those things, you know? So, um, so one day there, there was a girl and, and she was three years old and she was, she was a very cute, sweet girl. And she had been brought by her grandmother who happened to be 83. And so since she was the only girl, I brought her in and I didn't want her to have to be alone in the class. So I invited her 83 year old grandmother in and 
I taught those two people the same lesson. Mm -hmm. And that to me is part of the beauty of parkour is the span and people, I think, you know, and this is one of my, my, one of my takeaways. If you have ever said to yourself, I can't do parkour, you are wrong. I'm just going to say that you're wrong. And, and what I'll say is, is this further? And I don't mean this in a, in a demeaning or condescending way. You have the wrong idea of what parkour is. Because in, in my opinion, there is no person who cannot do parkour. And if somebody's been made to feel that way, it's because of a lack of understanding of scaling movements, of approaching movements, of what training really means. Training means failing. Training means we try something. And if, if for somebody, an increase in their physical capacity and their fear capacity means picking both feet up at the same time, then that to me is every bit as valid of parkour training absolutely as right. the person who can jump 9 feet now jumping 9 mm -hmm. feet 3 inches because if i could if i could not jump if i could not lift both of my feet at the same time because of crippling fear and i can i can work through that fear to me there is no difference between that and the fear of one of our great athletes looking at a, at a huge insurmountable challenge and of course, the final question, three words to describe your practice. Never, <laughs> never. Oh no. And uh, work, work, and work. Are those three words? That's three words, yes. Those the are, those are three words. and ands are allowed. So I am currently taking part in the APK 365 challenge. Mm -hmm. And I typically do the minimum requirement of 10 minutes a day. And I typically do that anywhere between midnight and midnight 30 of the following day. <laughs> So it's, it's sometimes very minimal balance practice, very minimal vaulting practice. And I force myself to that, even mm -hmm. though it has a degree of tedium, especially when that's when I get to it, that for me is part of the very challenge of doing something for 365 days is that tedium mm -hmm. and not quitting because it's tedious and sticking with it because that is what I want to do. And then on those glorious days when I, when I get a half an hour in the afternoon in the sunshine to go out and play, that's what I love. Sure. But I am committed to the practice. So I, I do commit to that, uh, APK three, six, five. And so it is, it's jammed between work and life. And there is tediousness when you, when you, when you call it training, it's not just play. I love the word play and I use the mm -hmm. word play all the time, but for me, training is also very important. So forcing myself to have the discipline to do that practice, even when I don't want to, it is an important part of what develops us as a person and not just as an athlete. Well, thank you very much, Mark. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Well, thank you. I really want to express just my, my true gratitude for this opportunity. I I'm such a fan of yours and, and what you're well, doing you. here. So the ability to be part of that is just really, uh, I'm just namaste. <laughs> thank you very much. It's actually my pleasure. This is, this is all just a giant trick for me to get to talk to the people that I want to talk to. I just bring gear with me. No, but seriously, it's a pleasure to talk to you and uh, I'm glad I got a chance to run down here. Uh, you're just close enough that I can actually get down here easily. So, uh, I'm, I'm going to hold you to that. Yeah, no, I'm planning <laughs> on, I, I just have so many people that I want to interview, but I have feeling you're one of the people that I'll have to talk to multiple times. So yeah, thanks a lot. It's great. Great. Thank you. This was episode 30. For more information, go to moversmindset.com slash 30. While you're there, please consider supporting the project. 
Thanks for listening.